Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swaminathan. And I'm Jenny Beck-Esme. So Jenny, I have a little bit of congratulations I got to give you before we start recording the podcast. Congratulations on finishing your chief year. Ah, well, thank you. It feels good. Yeah, you know, unlike uh, internal medicine, where they're real gluttons for punishment, they take out a whole extra year to do their chief year. We just kind of fold it into the fourth year, but it's a uh, it's not exactly a fun year. Now you do get a bonus in your paycheck. How much was that bonus again? Was it uh, one hundred and fifty dollars, or was it just a gift card to Starbucks? Yeah, more more like a gift card to Starbucks at yeah, the end of the yeah. day. It's a uh, it is a it's it's a very thankless job. But you guys, the three of you, did an absolutely incredible job. I think we all owe you a bit of thanks for a great year. So thank you. Well, thank you. I mean, it, it is a somewhat thankless, and it's a lot of work, but I would recommend it to people. I mean, it's kind of like doing um, an admin fellowship kind of rolled into your uh, your last year of residency. So if you're thinking you want to stay in academics, I would consider thinking about it going forward. Yeah, you know, I did a chief year. I had great chiefs. It's funny because I stay in closer touch with those guys than anybody else in my class because, you know, we went through a lot of stuff together, but we learned a ton. And all three of us have been in residency leadership. One's a program director up at Syracuse. One's an assistant program director out in L.A. And uh, I did the assistant residency director thing for a couple of years. So it really does help you to get your feet set in academics and helps to determine what you want to do. So it's a great thing. We definitely encourage people to do it, but uh, don't expect uh, it's all glamour and rewards because it's definitely not. Right. (laughs) All right. So Jenny, what are we going to cover today for the listeners? Well, this week we had a great lecture by one of our PGY2 residents, Phil DeSalvo, on mammal bites. Now, these happen pretty frequently, so I thought it would be a good one to tackle. I agree. Animal bites are pretty common. In fact, in the U.S., they're about 1% of all ED visits, which actually is a lot higher than I initially thought it would be. Clearly, dog bites are the most common. We see those about 60 to 90% of all of our bites. But other bites, including cats and rodents, and, you know, of course, there's always the human bites that we have to think about. Yeah. Now, before we get into some of the specifics, let's have a little flashback to medical school microbiology. When seeing these wounds, it's important to remember that any infection that occurs will be due to flora from the biter's mouth and from the bitten's skin. Assuming we have typical human skin pathogens, we're going to include coverage for staph and strep. And then we also have to think about specific oral flora from the various biters. So for dogs, that's going to be pasturella. For cats, it's going to be bartonella. And for humans, it's going to be Iconella. Now, I remembered that in med school because it looked like eek to me. And so human <laughs> bites, if a human's biting you, you're going to go eek, and then you're going to have to think about Iconella. That's now, a nice additionally, tip for the, uh, for the boards right there. Definitely remember right? that one. <laughs> exactly. Now, additionally, for human bites, we're going to want to think about aerobic gram-positive cocci, so group A strep, and anaerobes, which are much more frequently found in bites from humans than from other animals. All right, so let's start with the most common animal bite, and that's the dog bite. I'm always thinking Cujo when these things pop up on the board. Unfortunately, or fortunately, since we live in New York, it's much less Cujo and much more of the Taco Bell dog. We see dog bites a lot, and there are a lot of ideas floating around about how they should be treated. I did a post on Rebel EM about a year ago talking about some of the common myths surrounding dog bites, and we'll link that in the show notes. The main things that we're, I think we're all taught and that I covered in that post was what antibiotics or if any antibiotics need to be given for prophylaxis and whether the wound itself can be closed. What do we do with that dog bite wound? 
So of all the bites we're going to talk about, the dog bite wounds have a tendency to look the worst. Injuries here can range from minor scratches to major complicated wounds, including deep open lacs or puncture wounds and avulsion and crush injuries. The big question we run into in the ED is whether we should close these wounds with sutures. There's a common myth that dog bites should never be closed with a primary closure. Yeah, and like you said, these are big bites, so we really want to think about, can we improve cosmesis for the patient? It turns out that the evidence disagrees with the typical teaching. If the dog wound is well irrigated, meaning high-pressure irrigation with copious fluids, it may be safe to close most bites within eight hours of injury. Closing these wounds actually seems to lead to better cosmetic outcomes, and that's what we're always worried about. If the wound gets closed and it gets infected, you're going to have a bad cosmetic outcome. A patient probably is going to feel better that their wound is closed, and if they're also getting a better cosmetic outcome, it seems like the right thing to do. Now, the issue here is that we don't have the most robust evidence, right? We're not taking a thousand dog bites and then prospectively randomized control trial of closure versus no closure. But based on the evidence we have, it seems safe, but we're not giving a hard and fast recommendation here. Right. So now that brings us on to the antibiotics. Here, it's going to depend on whether you close the wound or not. Now, for this question, we can turn to a Cochrane review for a little help. And the link to that will be in the show notes. What this review found was that prophylactic antibiotics reduced infection for dog bites that were located on the hand, but not so much for other locations. So dog bites to the hand should be given antibiotics. Dog bites elsewhere don't give any antibiotics? Well, of course, it's not that simple. For sure, it seems that to be safe, we're going to give prophylactic antibiotics for dog bites on the hand, regardless of whether we close the wound or not. As far as bites to other body parts, we don't really know whether we should give the prophylactic antibiotic or not. The studies that looked at primary closure of dog bites almost always gave antibiotics as their routine care for prophylaxis. So I think at this point, if you're going to close the wound, regardless of location, you're going to be giving them antibiotics for prophylaxis against infection. For hand bites, whether you close them or leave them open, you're going to be giving prophylactic antibiotics. Otherwise, if it's a trunk bite and you're not going to close it, you might not need to give antibiotics, especially if you can copiously irrigate it. Now, of course, you're going to have to make this decision based on the patient in front of you. It's a really gnarly wound. The patient's a brittle diabetic. They're on chronic steroids. I'm probably going to give them antibiotics, and I think that's okay. Yeah, of course. For As with everything that we do in medicine, you have to remember that you're always going to have to tailor your thinking to the patient that's in front of you. So if we are going to give antibiotics for a dog bite, we're going to end up giving amoxicillin clavulinate 875 and 125 twice daily for three to five days. That's augmentin. Now, what about rabies prophylaxis? In general, when we're talking about the rabies prophylaxis, Jenny, we're going to be pretty liberal about doing it. Now, it depends on the type of animal that bit the patient and how well known that animal is. If the patient was bitten by their own domestic dog who's been vaccinated, you probably don't need any rabies prophylaxis to be given. The truth is, though, that's not most of the bites, right? Most of the bites are, I was walking down the street and some guy's dog bit me. It's hard then to track those dogs down. So if the patient was bitten by an unknown animal who has fur, and this is important because if you're not a mammal, you don't have to worry about rabies, right? So lizards, no rabies. But if you are bitten by a dog or a cat or a squirrel or a chipmunk or whatever animal you happen to wander by and you can't catch the animal and watch him for, you know, a couple of days to a week, 
you're probably going to offer them to get rabies prophylaxis. And again, the most common one is going to be dogs and cats that are not owned by the person who's coming in. The CDC is a great resource for figuring out, based on the type of exposure, whether your patient needs prophylaxis. And we'll drop a link to the CDC's website on rabies in the show notes. Yeah. Now, the one that we really want to think a lot about is the bat bite. The bat bite is a difficult one because often people will wake up in a room with with a bat there and bites can be really small. Most resources recommend that if there's a bat in the room with you and you're not sure if you were bitten by it, then you should be giving rabies prophylaxis. So basically, we're assuming if you're in a house, if there was a bat there, that bat bit you, whether you know it or not. Because like you said, these bites can be small and they can go unnoticed. They can almost look like scratches. If you decide the patient needs prophylaxis for rabies, you need to figure out whether they have been previously vaccinated. Now, most patients haven't, so you don't have to think too much about this. But if they haven't been in the past, you're going to give them both the rabies vaccine as well as the rabies immune globulin. This isn't something that we're going to do every day. So again, it's worthwhile to look this up to see exactly what the dose is. If you don't have an Hippocrates or one of those handheld kind of drug companions, then you can use the CDC website. Now, generally, the rabies immune globulin is a pretty high volume. What they ask you to do is to infiltrate as much of that volume into the area of the wound. So you're directly trying to inactivate the virus that may be present, and then you give the remainder injected as an IM dose. It's important also to note that the IM portion that you give of the immune globulin needs to be in a different site from where you give the vaccine, or the two will cancel each other out. Now, be sure to give the patient good follow-up instructions because they're going to need to get additional doses of vaccine on days 3, 7, and 14. Now, if the patient has been vaccinated before coming to see you, you can skip the rabies immunoglobulin and just give two doses of the vaccine, one in the ED and one on follow-up day 3. And then also when thinking about your vaccines, be sure to double-check whether the patient needs a tetanus booster and give that if they do. Now, we haven't talked much about the cat bites, but it is the second most common, so I think we should move over to that one. Now, Jenny, I know you have pretty strong feelings about cats. I don't want to get too controversial on the podcast, but I have a strong feeling that all cats are evil, and it's simply a matter of how evil. That is completely crazy. All cats are smart and independent and lovely, and you know that if they choose to spend their time with you, it's because you are truly a special person that they love. So you're saying that when they lick their claws and their paws, they're not self-inoculating. So when they get you, they can inoculate you with that bacteria? Absolutely not. They are just being clean and mm-hmm. wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because mm-hmm. cats' mouths are super clean. Well, let's, <laughs> let's get back to the topic here. Cat bites are a little different from dog bites. They tend to have long, skinny teeth, and usually their bites result in deep puncture wounds as opposed to the tearing that you see with dog bites. When they bite a hand, which is the most common target, they can puncture, and that puncture can go pretty deep. It can get all the way down to the periosteum or even into the joint, depending on where that bite is. As a result of this, you see patients who develop osteomyelitis and septic joints from cat bites. Additionally, they're really hard to irrigate because it is just a puncture wound. Now, since they're usually just puncture wounds, they don't usually require any primary closure. And when it comes to antibiotics, we can again turn to our Cochrane review. In general, a cat bite doesn't require prophylactic antibiotics, but if it's on a hand, seems particularly deep, or is anywhere near a joint, or is in an immunocompromised patient, it's probably just a good idea to give the antibiotics. Again, you're going to go with the Augmentin, the Amoxclav, for three to five days. Lastly, let's turn to the most fun of all bites, and that's the human bite. These generally come in two forms, children biting children or children biting adults and fight bites. 
Human bites from children are usually trivial and require no treatment beyond maybe a little irrigation and, you know, a little ouchy band-aid to make them feel better. That said, if they break through the dermis, you're going to have to treat them a little bit more like the fight bite, which we're going to get to in a moment. Additionally, Phil pointed out that we should be aware if you're looking at the bite mark and the maxillary intercanine distance is more than two and a half centimeters, then that bite was probably made by an adult and not a child. So if you see a kid with a bite like that, you're going to want to think maybe this is an indication of child abuse. Now, a fight bite or an adult human bite gets its name from the fact that these usually appear on the hands and knuckles of a patient who hits another patient in the face. This is why when we're taught to examine someone who's been in a fight or who's been assaulted, we want to always look carefully at their hands for any evidence of trauma. If the skin on their knuckles is broken by someone else's teeth, then they're at really high risk of an infection in that area. These patients should get IV antibiotics and evaluation by your orthopedics or hand colleagues for a good washout. And those consulting services have a pretty low threshold to take these patients for washout or at the absolute minimum, give them IV antibiotics and watch them to see if anything progresses. Now, lucky for us, the prophylaxis for a human bite is the same as a dog or cat bite. So again, we're going with that amoxicillin clavulanic acid 875-125 twice a day for three to five days. And of course, that's the dosing for adults. All right, now that was a bit of a whirlwind through mammal bites, Jenny, but why don't you give us the big take-home points for us to leave our listeners with? Of course. First, primary closure of dog bites is safe, provided you perform adequate and copious irrigation and close the wound within the first eight hours. Second, antibiotic prophylaxis with augmenting is indicated for any bite wound you close, wounds in dangerous locations like hands or joints, and for any patient you're worried about, like patients who are immunocompromised for any reason. And then last, always consider whether your patient needs tetanus or rabies prophylaxis. Check out the CDC sites for specifics on different animal exposures so you don't miss out on giving this. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google Plus, and on Twitter, where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week.